Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Another disappointing Republican election night and another Republican debate. Plus, who's right about the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, me or Maddie? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made in Cookware and ExpressVPN. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. A quick programming note. We are going to do the podcast as usual, then add an extra segment, paste it on, at the end with me, Maddie, and another friend about Killers of the Flower Moon with full plot spoilers. So if that's something you might enjoy, keep listening. If not, no sweat. So MBD, we had an election. It wasn't a debacle, but it was a disappointment for Republicans, and there's a lot of recriminations going around. We have uh, various culprits or alleged culprits. One is the issue of abortion, and yes, indeed, Republicans got smoked, and pro-lifers got smoked, and yet another one of these ballot initiatives, this time in Ohio. Not a surprise, unfortunately, it's clear that this is what was going to happen, but it doesn't make it any less of a gut punch. And also Virginia Democrats who uh, hung on and actually uh, won control of both chambers also used abortion a lot. Then there's Donald Trump. And people who argue, well, he's poisonous to the Republican brand. And Virginia, they did call every Republican a MAGA extremist. And then this gets to the Republican debate, which we're going to discuss in detail in the next segment. You have Ronna McDaniel. Vivek went after her because a lot of uh, uh, right-wing influencers on social media have been going at her and saying she's, she's the problem. She's a rhino. She's an establishment hack. She didn't spend money in Virginia. Who's to blame here? Um, I think fa- failure has as many fathers as success, uh, generally <laughs> all of the above. Um, it's very clear abortion is hurting Republicans that Democrats are highly motivated to vote against it. That blends with voting against MAGA Republicans because Mr. MAGA himself, Donald Trump, you know, appointed the Supreme court that overthrew Roe v. Wade. Um, and so he is forever associated with the pro-life cause. However, 
much he may regret that or or distance himself from it or may preach you know some kind of you know compromise with exceptions um you know we just seen poll after poll um you know jd vance had a very thoughtful tweet after issue one in ohio went went uh for the pro-choice side saying that you know he looked at a lot of the polling on abortion and found that um voters would say well between the extreme of the very permissive issue one or the supposed extreme of ohio's heartbeat style law uh they choose the the former um and they'll they'll choose that every time and um so that that is definitely hurting i i think it also hurts you know <laughs> you didn't mention the chaos in the republican house uh is is also a factor that demotivates republicans uh and motivates democrats that also is a signature sign of you know the magnification of the republican party when matt gates can throw the house into chaos for weeks on end um so for, and and finally you know i don't think republic uh, republicans have a very coherent message about what they want to do with power right now uh they don't know if they should be following trump and a trumpian program they don't know if they should be reverting back to a pre-2015 republican party uh they don't have solid answers on you know what exactly they would do differently on in, on on inflation um so i i can just see that there's you know not a lot of reason to to, to run out and vote for republicans right now yeah so maddie this wasn't wasn't the worst night as, as charlie and dominic and some others have pointed out you know virginia was going to be a close result in the legislative races the hope of course from Glenn Youngkin and others was that Republicans would gain unified control of the Senate, state Senate and state House. Instead, they, uh, what, I guess they picked up a Senate seat, lost three House seats and ended, ended up in control of neither. But it's not as though they were wiped out. And certainly from the perspective of several years ago, Republicans are much better off in Virginia uh, than they were uh, before. Then you look at uh, Kentucky, you got a Bashir winning the governorship, which is not an unusual event in Kentucky. In fact, it's almost the norm. Andy Bashir's dad was also a very popular politician. I think Bashir's approval ratings were 60% or something, ran a very shrewd campaign, but a disappointment. This guy, Cameron, the Republican African-American guy, by all counts, is a rising star. Uh, McConnell uh, backed him. He also had Trump support, and he, he comes up short. And then the Republicans win in Mississippi, which is, which is what you'd expect. So none of this is, is shockingly bad. It's just a, kind of a, a, a wet blanket on top of a, an even worse wet blanket in 2022. Yeah, I mean, there's a frustratingly compelling argument now that Virginia is more of a blue state than a, than a purple state and that actually Youngkin's prior success was the anomaly. And I think we, we've seen that. He gave a really good effort, um, hard to fault. And on the issue of abortion in Virginia, I mean, you had a Republican incumbent in suburban Richmond uh, who was justifying her support for a fifth week, fifteen-week ban, which which is not extreme. It's, it's you know more than more than more permissive than some European countries. And and she was explaining that this was informed by her own experiences as an obstetrician, and it didn't make that much of a difference for many of the reasons you've explained. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't a total. Um, 
despairing defeat. Uh, Jim noted on the corner, you know, if you look back eight years ago to 2015, Republicans Republicans, uh, won two governor's races, Kentucky and Mississippi, and they lost one, Louisiana. And this year, you know, Republicans lost two governor's races, Louisiana Louisiana and Mississippi, and picked up one in, uh, sorry, other way around, lost um, one Louisiana, Mississippi, and lost Kentucky. And obviously we know what happened in 2016, so it's not necessarily a marker of total defeat. But on the issue of this um, ballot referendums, I mean, this is just death to the pro-life movement. Uh, We've seen now time and time again, we had so many losses in 2022, Kentucky, Kansas, Montana, Michigan. Now we have Ohio. We thought it was going to go this way. It wasn't even close, 56% to 43% in favour of really extreme abortion abortion rights. It's not even just abortion that's that's on the ballot. It's, uh, you know, all this transgender stuff as well. Um, And I think this comes back to something that our colleague John McCormack has pointed out, which is that we know now that the American people will choose abortion when it's the only issue. They will will side with the pro-choice side. Um, And yet at the same time, they will elect and re-elect leaders in red and purple states who impose significant legal limits on abortion. We've seen this with Brian Kemp in Georgia, Greg Abbott in Texas, um, Mike DeWine in, in Ohio. And so it's just, we, we need to obviously do everything we can. There's a huge issue about being outspent um, in terms of advertising. And there was a lot of just lying that went on um, about what uh, Republicans were really arguing uh, with, with regards to exceptions. So that needs to be addressed. That strategy needs to be addressed. But as much as possible, we just need to avoid these referendums and focus on um, electing pro-life legislators. Yeah. I mean, so far we've demonstrated we can lose anywhere on, right, on the exactly. referendum. We have one coming up in Florida, but if, Charlie, if I'm not mistaken, it requires 60% of the vote to pass, which should should be a cushion. But Charlie, I, I think you, if, uh, if I'm characterizing you correctly, you're uh, both of the mind, you know, this was not uh, a debacle. It's, it's you know, not, not too far from what, what you would expect, kind of an average, average night. At the same time, uh, Republicans are underperforming because they've hitched their wagon uh, to this guy, Donald Trump, who's radioactive to their brand. Yes, I think that the only result from Tuesday night that really matters and ought to prompt reflection is from Ohio, the abortion referendum. Once again, it was made clear to pro-lifers that if the question with which voters are presented is purely limited to abortion, voters will pick the pro-choice side. The rest of it, I think it was fluff, really. The election in Louisiana was so overwhelmingly won by the Republican in the first round that there was no second round on Tuesday night to mitigate some of the losses. That's a flipped seat. That's going to have real changes as a result. Mississippi, unpopular governor, won anyway. Republicans held it. Kentucky's an odd state because although the public prefers Democrats to serve as governor, it's not just Bashirs, it's Democrats. The state's elected only two Republican governors since 1972, and they only got one term each. It has such an overwhelming 
Republican contingent everywhere else, that the governor ends up in effect being ceremonial head of state. The House in Kentucky is 80-20 Republican. The Senate's 31-7 Republican. In Kentucky, it only takes a majority to overrule a veto. This year, every single veto that Andy Bashir offered up was rejected by the legislature. Every other statewide office in Kentucky is held by a Republican. And Virginia, I don't think, would have turned out much different if you had run two simulations with very slightly different variables. On the one hand, you'd have got 2021. On the other hand, you'd have got 2023. If that doesn't satisfy you, uh, then consider that inflation was very slightly worse in 2021 and people were more annoyed by it. Or consider that there was a gubernatorial race at the top of the ticket. Or consider that there was worry about the curriculum in public schools. The difference to me is negligible. And that Republicans were so competitive all the way up to Biden plus eight seats, I think is something of a shift in Virginia, as you pointed out, Rich. The state has not been hospitable territory for Republicans in recent years. But abortion is a problem. My theory of politics at the moment, as you suggest, is that the Republican Party, if it wishes to be more successful generally, uh, can sustain only one albatross around its neck. Political parties should, if they're to be successful, pick a whole bunch of successful issues, and then they will have some that people don't like, both because those issues are necessary to round out the rest of the agenda or because they believe strongly, morally, that something is true and they're not willing to sacrifice it at the altar of democracy. At the moment, the Republicans have two problems. One is abortion. I think the degree to which abortion is a problem is overstated, but it is a problem. And the other is Donald Trump. I think that Republicans can sustain one of these albatrosses. I don't think that they can sustain both. Uh, you, you know who, who agrees with you? It's Trump, right? Because well, <laughs> he's true. doing everything he can. But to only one abortion. of them, contra Donald Trump, is worth taking yeah. a hit for. You cannot, if you believe that abortion is killing, you cannot give it up in the name of democratic expediency. You can jettison and should jettison Donald Trump, who is supposed to be a vessel, not just Donald Trump, any politician. Politicians are servants. They're emissaries. They are valets. We employ them on an at-will basis to advance our interests. The idea that we would take one in the teeth to serve the politician out of some sort of loyalty is feudalism. It's absolutely bizarre. And I think the Republicans are going to have to understand that if they do want to win going forward, uh, they're going to have to get rid of one of those downsides. Because in, in most other areas, they're actually doing very well. If you look at polling, it's remarkable the extent to which Republicans have an advantage on all of the most salient issues of our time. The economy, inflation, foreign policy, the debt, the deficit, uh, crime, immigration. Uh, these are all issues that people are worried about at the moment. But if you say to voters, look, the Republican Party is crazy, Donald Trump is its face, the MAGA movement is out of control, and also it's full of abortion extremists, you do take too much of a hit. And I would just point out as a final point that those two things are more related than people think. I know we're going to talk about uh, the debate and the state of the race. 
Nikki Haley giving her abortion answer yields a different response than abortion being tied to Matt Gates. If someone is already of the view that a given politician or a party that is associated with a politician is extreme, whether that's fair or not, they're more likely to subsume their view of other issues into that extremist framework. So one of the things that Democrats have been really, really good at is pointing to people in the Republican coalition who really are crazy and then saying, see, that person is pro-life. And it works quite well. What you want, it's, this isn't a band-aid, this isn't some panacea, but what you want is to be able to say, look at that politician you like, also he's pro-life. This is why Reagan got away with being really, really pro-life, because people liked and trusted Reagan, and so that hit was less of a problem. And I, I think Republicans need to understand this, that when you can send out mailer after mailer after mailer saying extremist Republicans, January 6th Republicans, insurrectionist Republicans, point to all of Trump's weirdnesses, you also damage Republicans' advantages on the issues because those issues, by extension, seem less mainstream. MBDX, question to you. The election results on Tuesday are a warning sign for Republicans in 2024, yes or no? Yes, um, because we just keep getting, um, we just keep getting this pattern in several elections now of Democrats looking at the polling and panicking for weeks or months, or even if it's just the last few days before the election, and then magically they do just fine. Um, and so I think all of those polls showing weak Biden is. I mean, I, I do take those polls seriously, but when you add in Donald Trump and you add in the chaos of Republicans, when you realize there's no such thing as a generic Republican you can actually put on the ballot, um, suddenly uh, these, these contests become really close. So I just don't think Republicans should fool themselves that they're heading into next year very strong. Maddie. Um, I think it's reason not to get complacent, but I don't know how much can can be read into it beyond that. Charlie? Yes and no. No, in the sense that, as I say, I don't think any of those particular races were that informative. Yes, in the sense that Ohio reminded or should have reminded pro-lifers that they aren't winning. And yes, in the sense, as I say that there's still a weakness in the suburbs that is caused by the combination of Donald Trump and abortion and that is going to matter in 2024 when both of those questions will be hotly debated. Yeah, so I'm a, a yes, kind of in the MBD sense. It's just another case where the overall political environment did not issue forth with the results that you would have, the outcomes you would have expected. It's not, you know, it's not a direct analog to the presidential election next year. This is a, a low turnout affair, and lately Democrats have been much better at turning out their folks in low turnout 
elections. It'll be different, especially if Trump is on the ballot in 2024. But still, it just just shows, as Maddie says, uh, complacency is not uh, called for here. And even though I've been more bullish than some of my colleagues about Trump's choice uh, chances in 2024, I think kind of the balance of opinion in the Republican Party is just Biden loses no matter what, no matter who you put on the ballot, no matter what you do. And that's just not true, unfortunately. With that, let's pause and hear from our first sponsor this episode, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when using Made in products, and they can taste a difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made in, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Atkins, Stephanie Izzard, and more. Made in's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Made in stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Maiden's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame, plus an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more are on offer. We found all this to be true in the Lowry kitchen. Our Maiden pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. So Maiden cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors listeners can get 10% off, 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. So, Maddie, we had another Republican debate. Once again, Vivek outdid himself. He uh, was more the way he had acted in the first debate, which um, didn't really work out for him in terms of you know, tr- trying to garner th- more Republican support in the primaries. His unfavorable numbers uh, went up. His polling was worse, so he had a, a totally different attitude in the second debate where he was modest Mr. Nice Guy Vivek. Now he is obnoxious uh, Vivek again. Had a pretty good uh, open, you know, calling out Ronna McDaniel, which was cowardly because she's not the main factor (laughs) that's playing into Republican defeats. And she's the the creature entirely of Donald Trump. She wouldn't be there if Trump didn't want her to be there. She's been extremely accommodating. Just until recently, she was paying for all his uh, legal bills. So to call her out and not Trump is kind of ridiculous. And then, you know, he called Zelensky a Nazi, says says afterwards that that was a, a mistake. Uh, but it was a pretty grievous mistake. And then the thing that, that I think would be most remembered from this debate, at least re- regarding him, he mentioned Nikki Haley's uh, daughter in defending his use of TikTok, saying that she she had been using Active on the app uh, for a while. And that's just, uh, you know, breaking the 11th, 11th commandment of all politics to n- never bring someone's son or daughter into an argument, and Nikki Haley responded, you know, a little, maybe, maybe a little harshly, but understandably, calling him scum. Yeah. So, in terms of pure attention seeking, I think Vivek was the star of the show for the the most memorable moments. Um, there was also the the moment where he turned on the moderator 
and had a very performative and overly aggressive uh, spiel about how the corrupt media, uh, you know, why are we even doing this debate uh, with MSNBC, which it would make is a fair question, but, you know, and then at the end he's like, so go, answer, why are you so corrupt? Um, and yeah, I think there was, there was some entertainment value in his, his clearly rehearsed attack um, at, at both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis in, in terms of accusing them of oh, yeah. being Dick Cheney. Yeah, wearing, wearing the heels. Shows. Yeah, the heels. Yeah, so one of them could have shot we got to have a segment at some point about whether <laughs> uh, the, the cowboy boots that DeSantis wins, uh, wearers are actually are boosting his height or not. This is just <laughs> right, a really exactly. important issue. Well, they, they, they could have shot back that um, that he, he has three-inch hair. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, they were trying to trans, transcend the Yeah, the, you, the put those, you put the cowboy boots together with the hair, you'd have a candidate over six feet. I know, exactly. Um, yeah, but it was it was obviously clearly, like I say, rehearsed. Um, he, he's, he's trying to attract attention, and he clearly did attract attention. Uh, I thought that the questions um, during the debate were there was a very, very heavy emphasis on foreign policy, which is obviously very important right now. We would all agree it's very important right now. But I, I, I wonder if there was too much emphasis on it uh, at the expense of some other issues. I, obviously, that benefited Nikki Haley. She obviously has her experiences as a US ambassador to the United Nations, but she's also one of the clearest on what she actually thinks on this. Um, you know, she was she was able to sort of speak with, with great moral authority on this unholy alliance of Russia, China, and Iran. Um, you know, DeSantis also had a good moment. He he was talking about uh, making the Navy stronger, um, but he's much less secure on Ukraine. And people remember how you say something just as much as they remember what you say, and he just doesn't seem confident on it. I think that's that's hurting him. Um, but uh, yeah, so d- depending depending on whether you think it's just about being the most memorable or whether you think it's on substance, I think Haley won on substance and Vivek run on being the most memorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DeSantis also has a problem with the the fake smiles. I mean, they, they Charlie said this before. If you don't feel the smile, just don't smile. You know, if you're not a <laughs> smiley guy, don't smile. But trying to smile when it's clearly in, insincere and creates these these memes that that spread around is not. Is not great. So, Charlie, maybe you think this is uh, too downbeat or dismissive, but I just, you know, I really wonder about the effect of these debates. Now, they've obviously they they have helped Nikki Haley in a big way with, within the the smaller frame of this camp this uh, fight for a distant second. But they just the debates feel like an undercard um, that you'd watch, you know, before. Muhammad Ali, George Fraser match, except for Muhammad Ali says he's not showing up for any of these debates, and it's not clear that anyone else on this stage is a is a Fraser. Well, if you mean that because the Republican primary electorate continues to focus on Donald Trump, then whatever happens at the debate is rendered irrelevant, then I would agree. If you are implying that this is the fault of the people who are engaged in those debates, then I disagree. I thought this was the most substantive of the debates thus far, and I think that it is a scandal that nothing anyone within the Republican Party who is not Donald Trump does seems to matter. And I place blame for that on the Republican primary election, which I hope is still asleep or doing something else or watching football, rather than actively preferring the sideshow that is Donald Trump to the substance that is everyone else with the exception of Vivek. At some point, you just have to look at the voters. As I wrote yesterday, people talk about 
moments bringing men, cometh the hour, cometh the man. But there's a demand component to that. Those men don't get parachuted in. They have to be called for. Abraham Lincoln wouldn't have been Abraham Lincoln if the public had said no. The same is true of Ronald Reagan, Franklin Roosevelt. Pick your poison. So yes, it is correct to say that at the moment, the Republican primary electorate seems to prefer whatever Donald Trump is throwing up than what was presented at those debates. But I don't think that that is any indictment of those debates, which for the first time in a long time were actually rather useful and dealt with real issues in the world. And there are real issues in the world. And perhaps that's why this debate was better than all the others, because since the last one, we had October 7th, and it prompted concrete questions about Israel and Iran and America's role in the world, and concrete questions that yielded concrete disagreements that were not just offered up in outline. I want to, because I know, Rich, how much you love uh, reflecting on when I'm right. I want to (laughs) just say that I don't think I've ever in my entire 39 years been as right about anything as I was about Vivek Ramaswamy. (laughs) And I wholeheartedly endorse Nikki Haley calling him scum because that's what he is. He is scum. Uh, His behavior is scummy. His views are scummy. And his continued presence within this primary, which I hope will soon come to an end, is a disgrace. Uh, He cheapens uh, the whole affair. Uh, The two people who came out of this, I think, better than they went in were DeSantis and Haley. And uh, my reason for saying that is not that I disagree with you, Rich, that Trump isn't running away with it, but that if Trump isn't running away with it, if it's just a paper tiger or an optical illusion somehow, which I don't think is the case, but if that is the case, or if there really are super majorities of Republican voters who are picking Trump because of loyalty or reflex or name recognition or what you will, but who are open to others, then those two candidates have kept themselves in this and demonstrated that they will be adequate as Uh, competitors, uh, and that they have a a grasp of the facts and a good way of communicating their ideological and political views. So they did come out of it, I think, uh, well. Yeah, so MBD, it was a a tightly run debate. At first, I was kind of annoyed by the fact that people couldn't automatically respond when their names were invoked. But over time, I realized, you know, there was a purpose to that. And it was actually working out well, because that that's really one of the factors that led to the especially the second debate just spinning out of control. Because, um, you know, the pinballs bouncing all over the place as a moderator, when people can respond, and um, then then you get the mess and, and the crosstalk. So it was good in that sense. And it was it was um, in part because of that greater control exercise by the moderators was uh, had had more room for for substance and and was substantive and you saw you know that the the difference between um, DeSantis and Haley I agree with Charlie they're they're both 
good, but um, on entitlements, you know, Haley was a, a traditional Republican answer, and DeSantis totally evaded or, or cer- certainly didn't want to um, suggest that he would do anything to touch entitlements. I, I would have to go back and parse more carefully that answer to see, you know, if he left himself wiggle room. But certainly the, the casual listener would say, he was saying, no, we're not going to touch entitlements. And then Ukraine, where also I think there's there uh, there's wiggle room left by DeSantis. You know, he says he asked, we have to end this war, which would... You know, in the abstract, who who disagrees with that? He doesn't ever actually say, "Well, I'm going to cut off funding for the war," but it's obviously a much different kind of answer uh, than than Haley gives, which is which is more frankly uh, hawkish. So, at least on, on those two and and others, you, you see how they're they're taking different approaches to trying to become the the main alternative to Trump. Yeah, I think. Um I think DeSantis helped himself in this debate. Um, I think uh, I'm one who believes that Haley is doing very well to appeal to uh, a faction of the Republican Party that's that's about 25 percent of the Republican Party. Uh, you know that there's a you know New York Times Santa poll that kind of identified this kind of never Trump voter who is very hawkish on Ukraine, um, you know, very traditional Republican. Um, and while she's doing that, if she surpasses, um, DeSantis in, in the polls, she can hobble his candidacy entirely, uh, and and knock him out. And then maybe, you know, she tries to make an appeal to a a larger set. So that may be her strategy. Uh, and if it is, she's executing on it. Um, if she doesn't try to broaden her strategy, she's just going to get stuck at that 25% though. And then when DeSantis is gone, his voters are going to all go to Trump. Um, so, you know, that's the that's the dynamic I saw. I was I felt that the debate was not great for the Republican Party, uh, though. It was much more substantive, but it also felt like there were no big ideas and that there was no, you know, there was nothing new on offer. In fact, it felt sometimes like the Republican Party of, you know, 2006, where it's like, we're promising to transform the world with our military um, because government is so competent at that. Uh, and now we're going to fiddle with Social Security. <laughs> like, and it's just like, I was having nightmares about the 2006 and 2008 elections uh, after hearing some of this debate. Um, you know, and it, it's, a, it's a pity too, because in a way, like, Trump... Um, Trump could say the dumbest things in Republican debates, but he could also be the sharpest, or even when he was dumb, offer an idea that to 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 grasp onto about um, foreign policy or domestic policy. Um, but I I didn't see anything that you know. I thought the worst moment was when Vivek started talking about, um, started talking very well about increasing supply to um, meet uh, the the economic challenges that Americans are facing, specifically the supply of housing. Uh, He's dead right that we're locking a generation out of the the wealth building and uh, the wealth building power of the American dream because we're building so few houses, but then he switched into like, we're going to, 
you know, increase the labor force and in, 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 in a, and I only meant saying that we're going to reduce, you know, payments to people who aren't working, but I think a lot of voters are going to hear that and say, you want to lower my wages too. <laughs> um, and that's not, not going to fly. Um, you know, I, I felt Republicans lack for a bigger economic message, um, in that debate. And, until they find one, I think they're going to they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be vulnerable to Joe Biden, who's at least saying, "Hey, the United States is competing with China now. The United States is fighting uh, the good fight for uh, you know leadership in industry and the best jobs." Um, you know, until Republicans can say something to match that, they're going to be disarmed. All right, so let me stick with you, MBD. Exit question briefly. What is your most optimistic, somewhat plausible? That doesn't doesn't have to uh, be a high likelihood that it's going to happen, but but at least within the realm of possibility scenario for how the early primaries play out. Um, I was going to punish Trump for not doing the work. Um, I really believe I really believe that Iowa voters are anxious to punish Trump for not showing up to these debates. Uh, for not presenting himself uh, in a sufficient way, uh, and possibly even for being so tied up with his legal troubles. Um, and I think once, you know, he's pulling at, what, 48% while he's running it as an incumbent in, in Iowa? If you're running as an incumbent... 40, I think the Iowa poll was 43. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's horrible for an incumbent. Um so I think he's very, very vulnerable. Um, I think Republicans are tuning in very late to this race. Um, and I, I expect movement in Iowa, and then I think all bets are off. And then I think you will get um, Trump versus either De- Haley or DeSantis one-on-one You know, by the time we're in South Carolina. Maddie? Um, my most opti- op- optimistic scenario is that Donald Trump is struck by lightning and... Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley get on the same ticket. <laughs> Whoa, all right. <laughs> and, the, and the chances of lightning strikes? Uh. I don't know. It would have to be an act of God at that point. <laughs> Charlie? Well, I don't know. As I said last time, I don't know. I think there are two options. One is that it's going to be extremely predictable, and we're going to see the same thing we've seen for the last eight, nine years, which is that we wonder, and then Trump wins. Or the whole thing's a facade, and it's worth everyone keeping going and yeah people are tuning in late this is entirely anecdotal and i'm not sure it counts for much but please give me some good news from the bar charlie no it's not the bar i just need something not the bar but it is that the vast majority of registered republicans that i know respond to any questions i ask about this with isn't it 2023 so maybe maybe that's widespread and maybe it's not, because I don't exactly hang out with people who are viscerally committed to returning Donald Trump to the White House. So I don't know. I don't know. But I wouldn't give up if I were Haley or DeSantis. I would keep going so that if the second circumstance comes to fruition, they're standing there and they seem credible. You know, it is amazing just the perseverance of, of politicians. We, we tend to have dim, dim views 
of politicians for, for all sorts of understandable reasons, but to, to be DeSantis and, you know, be, be at the top of the world at the beginning of the year and just nothing but grinding bad news, not, not at every single news cycle, but most news cycle for an entire year and still be standing is incredible. And, and Nikki, you know, the other side of the coin, she, she was totally dismissed in nowhere for a very, very, very long time until, until the debate. So my, my most favorable scenario is... The Kim Reynolds endorsement coupled with solid, not electric or dominant, but solid performances in all three debates and a lot of work in Iowa moves DeSantis off the dime in Iowa. So it's finally, it's, it's not just down or stagnant. He, he begins to, to uh, sh- show some upward movement, you know, not, it doesn't have to be huge to, to start, you know, from 18 to 23 or 25 or something like that. And then he says, hey, hey, look, you know, you might, you might love Nikki, but she's not going to win Iowa. You know, no one else is, is going to win Iowa. Um, if you're not with, with Trump and you want something different, you got to go with me. And that begins to get some traction. And then Trump is a little softer than he looks. Doesn't have to be huge, but a little softer. And then you have a competitive race. Do, do I, am I predicting this? No, but I do think it is at least plausible with that let's hear from our second sponsor this episode express vpn charlie have you ever heard of data brokers they are the middlemen collecting and selling all those digital footprints that you leave online they can stitch together detailed profiles which include your browsing history online searches and location data and then they sell your profile off to another company that delivers you a targeted ad. No biggie, right? Well, actually it is. You might be surprised to learn that these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeland Security and everyone's favorite agency, the IRS. And I, for one, don't want the tax man showing up at my door because of some search I did on my phone. So to mask my digital footprints, I protect myself by using ExpressVPN. Now, one of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address. Every device on the internet has one. And that also reveals information about your location. But when you're connected via ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. It's tunneled through ExpressVPN. And that makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. Even better, ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. And that's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all my devices, my iPhone, my iPad, my computer. You can even put it on your home Wi-Fi router. And it's easy to use. All you do is add uh, one tap, rather. You can add the button, then tap it to turn it on, and you'll be protected. It is that easy easy. So if you want to make sure that your online activity and your data is protected with the best VPN that money can buy, visit expressvpn.com slash editors right now, and you can get three extra months free through that special link. That's expressvpn.com slash editors to learn more. Thanks so much, Charlie. So Charlie, sticking with you, you were our expert Joe Manchin, tea leave reader, all during the various spending fights when he ended up uh, 
going south uh, and voted for the infl- so-called Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, torched his West Virginia uh, career, and now unsurprisingly says he's not running for Senate again. It would have been a, a bad way to end uh, his career in West Virginia, which has been ongoing since 1982, to lose pretty handily a Senate race right at the end. So he's pulled out and instead says he's going to tour the country, seeing if he can get a conversation going about uh, uh, the, the center of the electorate and mobilizing the middle of the electorate potentially for a third party no labels run. What do you make of it? Well, I think Manchin's made the right call retiring. I don't think that he would have won re-election in 2024, whatever he did. But I think that once he had decided to go back on all of those emotional missives that he put out and his catchphrase in West Virginia, which is that if he can't explain it to the people back home, he won't vote for it, then he was dead in the water. And at one level, although he'd probably hate to admit it, Joe Biden made sure of that by taking the fruits of Manchin's work with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is really all about climate change, and sticking Manchin in the eye with it by interpreting its text in a way that screwed over West Virginia. So Manchin is completely right to think that he's not going to be re-elected to the Senate and therefore to opt out. Is Manchin going to be anything else? I don't know. I think probably not. History would suggest probably not. Third parties don't do too well within the United States. There are all sorts of hurdles. There's party loyalty. There's negative polarization. There's the rules and laws that we have in place in every state that props up the Democrats and the Republicans at the expense of everyone else. There's also political incentives. We're currently seeing the Democrats try to ensure that nobody who is not a Republican or a Democrat is able to run in 2024. But... This is the sort of year where strange things might happen because the country hates both parties and their candidates. This is the first time in a long, long time in which both parties have been told explicitly by the public, we don't like that guy. And they've said, great, we'll go with him anyway. And is Joe Manchin the sort of guy who could jump in and play Ross Perot? Yeah, I think he might be. And if he isn't, someone else will be. So if I were Joe Manchin, I would absolutely go around the country and see if there were any interest because stranger things have happened. And Manchin actually probably is where he would need to be to pull it off. He's a conservative Democrat. He's a Democrat who won in a Trump state. He's a guy who has a a strange mix of ideological beliefs that approximate the strange mix of ideological beliefs held by quite a lot of Americans. So I don't think it's crazy for him to go and find out whether there's an appetite now. So, Maddie, if you were Joe Manchin, would you tour the country, seeing if there's a centrist alternative here? Uh, You could be it? No. So if I were Joe Manchin, then I wouldn't be a particularly formidable fundraiser. Um, And obviously you have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, which doesn't sound like um, much fun to me. Also, there's the the age factor here, which is the same conversation people are having about Biden, of course, but also Trump. I mean, Manchin is 76, Trump's, what, 77. You know, I, I think he would be hurt by that. 
in the same way that they have. Um, it is interesting that he's he's kept it deliberately open. You know, he was, I think in July, uh, there was a criticism, a democratic criticism that he would be a spoiler candidate and he hit back that if he gets in a race, he's going to win, um, which is obviously... Got got people interested in this question. Um, it definitely hurts the Democrats. His his retiring. I mean, he's obviously widely viewed as the only Democrat who can actually run competitively in uh, West Virginia, and that's probably true. You know, uh, Jim Justice was was favoured to win, but there really isn't anyone other than Joe Manchin who seems able to to beat him. Um, if I were Joe Manchin, I think I would enjoy my retirement. But who knows? As Charlie says, stranger things have happened. So MBD, the, the no labels thing, there's, there's obviously more of an opening for it than there has been in a very long time, probably since 1992, when Ross Perot, despite dropping out of the race and saying crazy things about Republicans disrupting his daughter's wedding uh, and then getting back in the race, still got 18.9% of the vote. And the abstract conditions are as good for a third party or independent bid than, than we've seen since then. We see in the polling of RFK Jr., which is not going to hold up at the level it is now, but he's he's winning, you know, above 20% nationally in some of these hypothetical matchups with Trump and Biden. Andy McCarthy was pointing out correctly on his podcast the other day that uh, everyone was focused on that New York Times poll where Trump was ahead of Biden in five or five of the six swing states, but then you throw in RFK. And it, it, it jumbled the whole thing. So I don't think RFK is that guy because he's too much of a whack job, and that will be um, pointed out and made clear over time. But you can see why the no-labels no folks are looking at this seriously. The scuttlebutt has been they'd want a Republican at the top of the ticket, which would mean Larry Hogan. But uh, if you're Joe Manchin, how seriously would, would you be looking at this? I would look at it if I were Joe Manchin, but maybe I'm skeptical of Joe Manchin as the answer. Um, you know, when Ross Perot ran, he was running against, he, he was not only running against Bush and Clinton, he was running against the consensus between them, right? He was, he was running against uh, NAFTA, he was running against free trade, um, he was running against the direction, the you know, the post-war American bipartisan consensus was going. Um, right now, you know, Donald Trump is the candidate that pleases, when, when you look at the polling, very conservative Republicans like Donald Trump. So he's closed up on the, he's on the bunch to the right side of his party. And it's moderate Republicans who tend to not like Donald Trump um, on the whole. Uh, whereas Joe Biden kind of sits on the opposite, where moderate Democrats still like him, but the far left is getting disaffected, especially over his, uh, you know, where he's standing on Israel and and, and uh, Gaza Strip right now. That's I feel like that's not the greatest recipe for a centrist Democrat to run in, uh, unless you can push Joe Biden to the left somehow. Um, you know, I actually, I actually think there is more opportunity for an RFK Jr. because his candidacy is, uh, you know, against expertise generally, <laughs> but from a, a more left-wing uh, perspective than Donald Trump. Um, you know, he's a populist of the left in a, in a different way. Um, 
I, you know, I, I just don't, I, I think Joe Manchin, you know, the voter he's going for is sort of the Trump Democrat voter. Um, and it's not clear who, it's not clear uh, to me that he would get above 10%. So that kind of preempts my exit question, which was going to be to you first, Charlie. If there was, say, and there's a committee out trying to make this happen. It's not, not going to happen, but let's just uh, uh, entertain the, the, the idea for the sake of argument. If there were a Romney Mansion ticket, it would get at least 20 percent in 2024 nationally, yes or no? Hmm. No, I wouldn't say at least. I think that might be the at most. I think I'd put it more likely at between 12 and 15%. Maddie? Um, I think that ticket would be lucky to get 10%. MBD? Um, gosh, how many ballots can they get on, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, ballot access is a, is a problem. The, the no-labels people are on 12 at the moment. They don't have to. Yeah, I guess they, they say they'd be competitive in twenty-five, so they don't need to get in all fifty. But their goal is all fifty, and they're currently at twelve, and, and embroiled in, yes. in litigation in Arizona. Yeah, no, it's just it's just tough. I mean, the Republicans and Democrats basically are like, um, you know, a mafia. You want to see how much Democrats love democracy? Google Democrats try to block no labels ballot access and just see the fire that comes <laughs> out of your screen. Well, no, that's no, no, it's exactly it. But if Republicans thought it was the biggest bigger threat to them, they would. No, Republicans are doing it too. I'm just saying the fervor with which the Democratic Party is fighting the no labels team is astonishing. No, I know, I know. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's. It's positively Ukrainian the way we we ban unacceptable oh. parties in this country. Um, um, All right, the vague, the vague Brendan Doherty. Your hair just grew four inches. <laughs> Sorry, but um, uh, yeah, I think if if he got on enough, if he got on all fifty state ballots, uh, I would I would put it at the high mark at fifteen. But if no labels can get on all 50 state ballots and and does, then someone else is going to do it too. And there's going to be like f- at least four tickets to vote for. Um, it'll it'll get stranger still, you know. Maybe we'll get John Hagelin's Natural Law Party and the yogic <laughs> flying people back. Um, we'll see. So I'm with Charlie. I think it'd be around 12 or, or, or 15%, you know, which is uh, – Ross Perot, no, no one's come anywhere close to matching Perot, so 12 to 15 would be pretty high and, and obviously really scramble the race in important respects. With that, let me do a quick plug for Rounder Plus, digital subscription services, nationalreview.com. You're away around our meter paywall. You're away if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads. You're away to comment on articles and blog posts if that floats your boat and get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers and editors. So please consider signing up for NR Plus today, tomorrow, or the day after. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you're a little bit behind the times, but you've been watching Ozark. Yeah, I finally was catching up on this, uh, you know, Midwest version of Breaking Bad. Um, it's a series on Netflix where Jason Bateman plays a uh, money launderer for a Mexican cartel, which itself is like an insane pitch for a series. 
But uh, Bateman is actually pretty great in it, and so is the young actress who plays um, a character named Ruth, a really great young female actress. And um, it's a little, it's dark, it's a little less humorous than uh, Breaking Bad, Um, but the kind of scenes set in the Lake of the Ozarks are gorgeous, and um, the episodes that are directed by Jason Bateman in particular are actually really fine pieces of, of TV filmic work. Um, so it's worth, it's definitely worth, worth checking out. It's not, it's not my favorite show ever, but it's what I've been watching this week. So Maddie, you've gone to the movies. I did. And I, I won't what, what say, did you see? Did it well, see? I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I went to see killers of the flower moon, which I, I'll save my comments about the movie for, for the next segment. But um, actually just going to the movies is just, such a fun thing to do and I hadn't been in such a long time I went with my husband we got um uh, Diet Coke we actually didn't get popcorn because we were going out for dinner right afterwards because it's as you know Rich a long movie (laughs) uh, we we left hungry but it was just such a great experience you know seeing things on the big screen and uh, I intend to to do it more often. Charlie you watched a documentary about Beckham I did. My dad, who liked Colors of the Flower Moon, <laughs> texted me and said, you should watch this documentary on David Beckham. Now, my dad and I are big Manchester United fans and probably watched every single game David Beckham ever played for for Manchester United together, or at least the highlight. So this was, a, albeit across the Atlantic Ocean, bonding exercise at one level. But it's also a really good documentary. Uh, it's Slightly biased towards David Beckham because he's the executive producer. And that is, as many have pointed out, the one flaw. But it doesn't ruin it. uh, And it doesn't mean that all of the punches are pulled. It is a fascinating story. It's really well done. And if you were a fanatical fan of Beckham and Manchester United in the 1990s and early 2000s, well, it is a real trip down memory lane. So we've had a little masonry project going on. Uh, in the back of our house, and my my dad was was a man of very few but intense interests: American literature, cats, baseball, World War II. That, that was pretty much it. But but he had a sidelight in in masonry. And I remember once someone was having their um, front steps redone across the street, and, and he would just sit there looking out the window with binoculars to see <laughs> just to to watch in detail what the guys were doing, and actually did his own brickwork on our our back. Uh, back walk. So I'm not that interested, but it is just amazing just how the, these guys take these these big slabs of stone and, and um, uh, you know, can, can build, build a wall or just build a, build a perfectly even uh, surface. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Um, my pick is a piece by Caroline Downey. How Oregon progressives went around the public to eliminate graduation requirements in the name of equity. Uh, this is a story I hadn't even heard about, and uh, Caroline does a really great job of covering it. So check it out. Maddie? Um, I really appreciated uh, Phil Klein's piece on the ethics of covering um, Hamas, and he, he kind of discusses uh, what obviously crosses the line is, you know, holding a grenade and uh, being part, being participants in attacks. But um, there's this other question in journalism about whether in the interest of detachment, should you not intervene? Um, should you not exercise your moral judgment? Uh, Phil believes that 
it's much more important to be a good human being than to be a good journalist. I would agree with that, but I thought he did a really great job of, of explaining the different angles of this debate. Charlie? I'm going to, having shaken my head at him many times during this podcast, I'm going to pick Michael Brendan Doughty's piece. Our way of pro-life is fading. I don't agree with all of this. I don't have time to do a full review. But I think Michael hits at a really key point, which is that politics and culture are inexplicable. And if you have a culture uh, that reflexively treats children, big families, the news of pregnancy in the way that ours often does, then you're going to have a politics that follows on from that. And you cannot fix one without the other. So my pick is a piece by Luther Abel in the new monthly issue, the second monthly issue. And there's an ongoing feature in the new magazine of writers just going and experiencing some byway of uh, uh, American life or some uh, cultural niche. Charlie leveraged this into going to see the Jaguars in London. L- Luther, maybe not a, such a, uh, a welcome uh, assignment, but leveraged it just in riding a milk truck uh, early in the morning out in Wisconsin. But it's a truly wonderful piece. And so now, as promised, our extra special segment on Killers of the Flower Moon. Maddie is still here. We're also joined by my friend John Carlos Sopo, the Cuban missile, a communications expert with a sidelight in uh, movies. Both Maddie and John Carlo really liked this film. I hated it. I was hoping to have a more fair fight and have three people on who loved it against uh, me just standing against it. But we'll, we'll just go two on one here. Again, if you're not interested in this movie, the podcast is over, the regular programming is over, so feel free to hit stop. If you think you might wanna see this movie, I urge you not to listen to this as well because we're gonna do full plot spoilers discussing everything that happens, uh, including all the uh, twists and turns in the ending. So, Maddie, let's go to you first. Let's hear from you why you liked it, then I'll say why uh, why I hated it, then John Carlo will come in and say why I'm wrong, and then we'll mix it up a little bit and end it. But basic plot, uh, based on a true story, David Gran, bestseller from 2017, I believe, about the Osage Indians in Oklahoma. They strike it incredibly rich. Uh, oil ends up being on their reservation. And then you have these uh, white families who murder the Indians to take their oil rights and make lots of money. And Martin Scorsese has made it into a three and a half hour long movie. Uh, I I hated it. Your dad liked it. Charlie's dad liked it. You went to see yourself and you liked it as well. I did. So I should start by saying that I went in knowing basically nothing about the story. So I I didn't know about the Osage murders. I didn't know um, what the plot was going to be. So I really went in a blank slate. And there were various things that that were intriguing from the get-go. So there's the the true crime aspect. There's kind of the sweeping historical epic, which um, gives you a, a sense of what, what it was like in Oklahoma in the 1920s. It's a, a powerful, uh, as you would expect with any big budget movie, it's, it's, you know, there's lots to catch your attention, catch your eye. But immediately what really grabbed me was the moral drama of uh this central character, Ernest Burkhart, and his wife, um, Molly Kyle. And 
they're developing um, love story, which which takes a very sinister turn, obviously, as Ernest uh, becomes part of his uncle's plan to kill Molly off and to steal her money, redirect her wealth. Um, I just found myself really just engrossed in this in this story, and and the reason for that, I think, was that it was believable that this dim, selfish man did does really fall for his wife and does care for his wife as you would expect you know a normal well-adjusted person to do which he he isn't um and he has multiple children with her and there are these moments of of tenderness with his wife throughout the movie which are really well acted well written well directed um that obviously contrast uh, against this absolute monstrous uh, scheme that he's complicit in and the key difference between him and his uncle is that he has a conscience and so i think the movie is a really interesting exploration of moral depravity but also just how sin really works there's this there's this scene at the end of the movie and um, kind of stealing from my dad here because he he pointed out and as soon as he said it I was like oh that's totally right um, where Ernest and his uncle Hale are in cages um, they've been caught by the FBI they're awaiting trial and they're in these cages I thought this is a great illustration of what sin does to to a person is it, it keeps them isolated uh from other people it keeps them imprisoned um, cut off from the people who actually love them and I think the Molly's a very compelling character because she genuinely loves her husband, is patient, is willing um, to forgive him until the very end. And you really do feel like there's a struggle on for Ernest's soul. Uh, is he going to repent or is he going to commit to this this lie and this life of sin? And uh, ultimately, in the end, he, he picks the lies and the life of sin. But really, Scorsese has you guessing like right, right up to the very end. Um, which he's going to pick. I thought it was a very Catholic movie. I, I'm a Catholic. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the what I saw in it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm the Protestant here, and I hated it. So maybe, maybe yeah. that's plausible. <laughs> yeah, you know, Scorsese's a Catholic, so I, I, I felt like these these moral um, these moral dimensions weren't just my reading into it. They were really there in the movie, and there's reference to to faith throughout the movie, um, both Catholicism and this sort of Mother Earth spirituality. Um, and I thought it was psychologically plausible, I thought it was spiritually plausible, and the drama of this marriage just basically transcended other more valid criticisms of the film, which I think are fair to do with length and casting and so on. Um, I thought it was great. I, le- I left feeling like I'd really watched something masterful. <laughs> yeah, so I think the big, the big difference between us is just the, the question of plausibility. So, um, first of all, I, I didn't like either um, Molly or Ernest. I mean, Ernest is a, uh, a moron and a sociopath. Molly, I, I did like her when she smiled twice in, in the movie. I thought that that was great, especially the, the scene where um, I think are they, they had a, got some sort of social gathering and the Osage women are, are talking among themselves about these you know white guys who, who all want to marry them, and uh, you know she calls uh, Ernest a. a uh, uh, a coyote, and and yeah, so she sort of knows what he's about. You know, he, he wants the money, but he's she's also charmed by him. Otherwise, she spends the rest of the movie sick and dying, and, and this is where it goes to the self indulgence, in my view, and also the implausibility, the self indulgence on the part of Scorsese. All right, maybe you want to show. 
him injecting his wife, who he really loves, with uh, poisoned insulin shots once. Maybe you want to show it once. I'm not even sure you need to show it once. You know, you could do him mixing up the, the poison powder uh, in, into the shot and then having, you know, his son is, is, how's mommy doing, dad? Well, she's not doing so great, you know, <laughs> and leave it at that. Instead, I mean, it must have been 10 times we see him inject her and she's getting sicker and sweatier and uh, uh, having more and more fever dreams. And it's just... It must be 20 minutes of that, 20 minutes of that, and I found it totally unwatchable. And then by the end, I was laughing out loud about his professions of, of love for the woman he's killing, like not, not in the, the heat of passion, but, but killing in the, the slowest, most deliberate, you know, uh, disgusting way possible. So, so I just, I didn't believe that uh, he, he loved her. Um, I, I, I didn't find him as a character... So, you know, they're obviously uh, sociopaths who uh, turn to crime all the time. But there was, I, I forget the exact juncture in the movie. It's like, okay, here's this dim-witted guy uh, who's uncle. And I thought De Niro is pretty compelling as, as his uncle, so-called King Hale, says, you know, go marry this, this woman. It'll, it'll be really good financially for us. He was like, okay, you know. And, and, and then he, he does it initially as part of the design, and then he, he's, like, he, he's genuinely interested in this, this, this woman. That, that's fine. And then all of a sudden, like, there's, there's this uh, switch flips, and he's a murderer. You know, he's, he's engaged in all, all these uh, uh, heinous acts of murder all over the place. I, I didn't know why, how did that, how that changeover um, happened. And then, you know, at the, the, the end, um, the, the part I really liked about the end was the, the radio show version of the story of the Osage murders. That was truly charming, clever. I, if, if there were just a 90-minute radio show version uh, of this story that he'd done, it would have been genius. Um, but also, you know what's going to happen. The FBI is going to show up, and then they're going to end up uh, getting caught, you know, and, and that's exactly uh, what happened. So I found it kind of grim, dull, and implausible. But Giancarlo, you you uh, uh, you have a totally different take. Yeah, I actually thought that uh, Martin Scorsese with this film has given us uh, one of the greatest American epics of the 21st century and, and definitely one of the best films of the year for me. Uh, I thought he could have gone in so many different directions with this script. In fact, originally it was supposed to be mirror the book, kind of like be this classic like police whodunit. Uh, and instead, he, he really takes you deep into Molly and Ernest's relationship. And I thought that was very bold because you're talking about someone who is like literally murdering his wife's family. Uh, so you, you have the vi the villain at the center of the of, of the movie. And he's somewhat sympathetic at times because he, he first you're first introduced to him as a as a war veteran. And all of us, you know, just, just tend to be naturally sympathetic towards towards veterans. And over time, you see his character evolve. And I, I thought that was very compelling. I thought it was a very brave choice in screenwriting. And I just think overall, if I had one critique of this film, it's that I, I you know, I think all the three of us may be in agreement here is that I actually would have loved to have spent more time with Molly because uh, every scene where Lily Gladstone is in, I think she she steals it. Um, and ultimately I think this movie is like a, like a great brisket. Uh, it just, it takes time to fully cook. Uh, it's definitely, it's <laughs> definitely a slow burn. Uh, I don't think it's a mystery. I think, you know, within the first 15 minutes, you know exactly what's going on here. So it's really more of a moral drama and a love story. Um, 
and I, I, you know, use that love story very delicately here, give, given the context. Um, and I want to say that there, there are a couple of things that really stood out to me and that I thought were very impressive. The first is that I think whenever you, you see a period piece, you could just be really thrown off by the period piece if, if it just doesn't look right. And they absolutely nailed it. Uh, when you think of, you know, movies that take place at around this time, you think of, you know, films like Reds, you think of Bonnie and Clyde. And I, I really think that Scorsese surpassed that here. And a lot of the credit goes to this um, uh, to the production designer, a guy called Jack uh, Jack Fisk, uh, who is act- interestingly Sissy Spacek's husband. Um, he literally built a small train station for this film. And in fact, they went out of their way to just really match the authenticity of the period uh, that they actually bought a special kind of dirt to resemble the dirt that they use. That's, that's, that's the level of attention to detail. They didn't go to like the Paramount lot to get the furniture. Uh, they, they actually went to like local antique stores. Uh, they did a lot of historical research. And I, I thought that that really pays in dividends. And th- another thing that really impressed me about the film was De Niro's performance. I thought he's delivered one of the great villains of movie history uh, with his portrayal of Bill Hale. And I, I kept thinking back to Robert Mitchum. One of the great villains of movie history? Well, one of the great villains of movie history. I, in fact, I kept thinking back to Robert Mitchum uh, as Reverend Harry Powell in The Night of the Hunter. Uh, just this this really, this demon. Uh, and he's, he's not overacting. It's very natural. The weight of of Robert De Niro really comes through because you've seen him and you've seen him play these gangsters before, so that's always sticking out in the back of your mind. And he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't he doesn't like go for it to say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm Robert De Niro and I'm gonna act like a gangster here." I thought that was really really impressive. And I, I I think if you've seen Night of the Hunter, which is has very some very similar themes about a guy who's a snake oil salesman uh, conning a family and ultimately killing his wife. I think there are a lot of themes here, and these movies are, are really in conversation with one another. So I loved it. Uh, I, I went to see it twice. I've now dedicated seven hours of my life to this film, and <laughs> it was time well spent. So, Maddie, I think we've hit on, uh, and feel free to, to respond to anything I, I said, but I think we've hit on two of the key differences. One, the plausibility, and then Giancarlo says, you know, it's like, like brisket. It's kind of, you know, a, 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 slow, a slow cook, and this is... Um, I, I take it to be Ross Douthat's experience as well, because he uh, agreed with many of my critiques of the movie, but then said, you know, by the end, it all just kind of woven together into this very compelling moral tale. So it saved, saved it for him uh, at the end and made everything else worth it. Whereas for, for me, it was like, I, I didn't believe it at the end and didn't find it compelling at the end. So it's, the, it's all about the flaws. Yeah, so I actually didn't notice many of the flaws and, until they were later pointed out to me, um, which is maybe just a sign that I was so caught up in, in the story. Um, but just to respond to a few things you've said about plausibility. So the first thing I would challenge is this idea that a flip switches suddenly. I think when we meet Ernest, he's we have a pretty good idea of who he is. He's, he's pretty low. Um, he's obviously been, a, been in the First World War and doesn't seem to have any, taken away any great moral insights at all. Um, he loves women and he's money. He's greedy. He loves, yeah, he's greedy and, and lustful and, and, and pretty open about it. And then we see early scenes in the movie of him stealing, gambling, drinking. Um, I think he's 
I'm not sure if it's the, the chronology of this, but his first offence, I think, is when he, he's involved in a scam to get uh, insurance money. So he, he gets his friend to steal his car. Um, and then I think, again, could be could be wrong about this, but I think the chronology of it is the first person he kills, um, or at least the, the suggestion is he kills him, is the private detective. So this isn't a cold-blooded, I'm just going to kill him. This is, I'm back to the corner Um and I, I, this guy's breathing down my neck. I need to, you know, I need to do something about it. He's obviously already involved at this point in the broader scheme. His brother is killing people. His uncle is telling uh, them who to kill. But I feel like the the scheme to kill people is re- revealed to him slowly, and he become he sort of sinks into it. Um, as for the uh, the scenes of him poisoning his wife, absolutely abhorrent. And I think you're supposed to think they're abhorrent. And I, I don't mean to be suggesting in any way that it's not. It is. Um, but I think you, you do see in those scenes, um, to me, which is maybe, maybe not so relatable in the context of murder, but it is relatable in the context of sin more generally, which is this is somebody who keeps doing something that is violating their conscience. And like I say, that's the difference between Ernest and his uncle is that he does have a conscience. And yet he just he just seem, seems to seems to be he can't help himself. Of course he can help himself and he is morally accountable, but he's just pulled in. Um, and then you do see him struggle with this. You know, he, he'll, he'll poison her and then he'll comfort her. He'll even in one scene, you see him sort of administer some of the poison to himself as well, you know, as, as a kind of form of self-punishment. Um, so I, I did find that compelling and I, I did find it believable. And does he love his wife? No, he doesn't love his wife if, if we're going to use the, the proper definition of love, which is wanting what is right and doing what is best for somebody else. No, he fails miserably at loving his wife. But is he capable of loving his wife? Yes. And I think that's what really keeps you gripped as as an audience, is you're, you, you see this potential, you see genuine affection and genuine goodwill at various points in the movie. And then ultimately, he gives in to sin. He gives in to his his uncle's uh, evil designs. You know, he even even there's an element of it at the end where he, um, you know, he 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 wants to be loyal to his his uncle in in some ways. He's very easily manipulated. Um, generally, a loathsome character, and yet there is this potential. And I think that's the kind of that's the tragedy uh, that you're watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all very. That's, I, I take all those points. Those are very well stated. I just couldn't. I just have known in real life any any story of of anyone who kills their wife, who uh, really really loves them. Again, maybe in a fit of passion, but th- this kind of deliberate over time, seeing her suffer right before your for your eyes, and you're like, oh, honey, I I I really love you. I just I don't believe it. It's but just he, it's not it, that's not true to life. If I could just say say at that point, he doesn't kill her. He doesn't, and I think it's strongly implied that he is intentionally refraining from using the lethal dose that that's why you know you, you repeatedly see his uncle be like putting pressure on him being like you need to hurry up and do this and he he doesn't kill his wife. now granted he could have say like you know how does he know what particular dose of poison is going to be the final dose but i think the suggestion is that he he can't quite bring himself to go through with it yeah, so, uh, okay. that's interesting. I, I just thought I, I just took it as a matter of he, he was that the feds came in and rescued her in time otherwise she was you know, and, and I, I took it to be that she was at death's door when when they came and got her. That's true. I mean, but and, and yeah, apparently yes, in real life, it took a while to get there. Yeah, apparently, in, in, Sorry, in no, I was gonna say apparently in real life, uh, the real Ernest Burkhart, uh, r- rather the real Molly Burkhart, uh, she was uh, 
she had a really hard time accepting that her husband was involved with this almost until the end. Uh, it, it wasn't until he admitted to everything in court that she came to terms with what actually happened. Uh, she still had a lot of hope for him. So apparently in real life, uh, there was a very real relationship there that, that happened. And, and the, their ch- do, do we know John Carlo, whether in real life he poisoned her? I, 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 something I read seemed to suggest we didn't, didn't know whether that was actually the case. As far as I know, it's unclear. I mean, it's, it's certainly the doctors knew what they were doing. Uh, it, it's, it's unclear to me whether he knew in real life. I'm going to have to, I haven't read the book yet. Uh, but certainly the, those two, the Shaw brothers knew exactly what they were doing. Um, you know, and, and there's so much, uh, you know, in fact, I think you could argue Scorsese may have left some meat on the bones here because uh, there are stories about uh, a hung jury where uh, some of the one of the jurors was, was bought off. So there, there was so much there that was happening. Uh, so for Scorsese to just really hone in on on this love story, I thought was very interesting. And I thought he was going to get absolutely ripped up and down for it. But uh, it's been well received. And, you know, like like I said, I, I think my only wish is that I, I wish we would have spent more time with Molly because she's uh, Lily Gladstone absolutely steals the movie in every scene that she's in. So that's another difference. I, I just she she left me totally cold and felt like even though obviously there is a, a major effort to be extremely deferential to the the tribe and, and how they wanted this story uh, portrayed. The Indians uh, uh, just seem very, very passive. I mean, there's a totally stereotypical drunken Indian that, that King Hale is is killing for for a little more money. And and I, I just didn't get the the this this uh, uh, sense of, of great depths or or uh, of Tamale and, and just didn't find her compelling, Maddie, besides the two smiles. Yeah, I mean, I. I really, uh, this is probably where I find your your critique most persuasive is I did think she was very passive um, and she wasn't um, in in certain scenes. So like there's one scene where she like, she's like, I've had enough of this. I'm going to Washington, um, as in Washington, D.C., to, to tr- try and advocate on behalf of her family. She also is the person in charge of getting the private detective in the first tape place but it seems every effort she she has to to sort of take charge is just shut down and crushed and some of that's just you you know you, it's believable it's not it's not really her fault she's got this she's a diabetic she's got this illness um she's bedbound for for a lot of the movie as well i think there's a there's a saving grace in this in that if you're reading it primarily as this sort of like moral drama with these underpinnings to do with faith and spirituality you can kind of take her as like She's almost like a like a saint, you know. She's kind of got this incredible patience and great depths to her love and her forgiveness and her and her her willingness to kind of see see through her marriage until the the, the final point where she she realizes what she's up against. Um, and it's, she certainly acts the part very well. But I do I do take the point. There's probably a few too many scenes of her, uh, you know, looking in pain or lying in the bed or sweating profusely. Probably could have done with slightly less of that. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's leave there. You got, you guys make great points. I, I, I urge people actually not to go uh, find out for themselves because <laughs> they, they will regret it and want the three and a half hours back. But I could I could be wrong and John, Carl, and Maddie both make great points. Let's do an exit question, as is our want for this segment as well. John, Carlo, best movie you've seen in the last 10 years? 
if this is the best movie I've seen in the in the last ten years, or no, no, uh, the, the best movie. I, I hope it's not this one, but uh, it, it can be this one just, if if you want to answer. But the best movie you've seen in the last ten years? Can it be an old movie that I just discovered? Uh, if if you insist. Okay. Well, the best movie I've seen in the last ten years would probably be Barry Lyndon, which I discovered not just a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, the best movie current movie that I've seen in the past 10 years. Uh, I'll say, I wouldn't say it's the best, but one of my favorites is Francis Ha, uh, starring uh, Greta Gerwig. Uh, and it's a Noah Baumbach film, and I, I, th- I thought it was really great. Many. I'm going to really annoy you, Rich. I'm going to say it was this one. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. So I'm going to say the Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm a huge Wes Anderson guy. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. And thank you, John Carlo. Thanks to Maiden and ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.